reading from Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, we are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Thanks be to God. Now we are starting a new series um, in the book of Ephesians. And I wanted to start off this morning just by sharing some insight into uh, my marriage and our, our, my relationship with Olivia. Uh, often when Olivia shares uh, something with me that she's concerned about or perhaps something that we're both struggling with, uh, she will uh, share her concern. And, and when she shares her concern, uh, in the past, my temptation has always been to say, It'll be fine. It'll work out. Don't worry. Now, how many of you think that works? (laughs) If you've been married, you know it it doesn't work, you know, because Olivia will respond to that with great indignation and say, you don't know that. And you know what? She's right. I don't know that. Now, we uh, recently added to our family, I think we have a photo here. Yeah, I I just did it just to get those oohs. Oohs and ahs. This is Boomer, our puppy. He's a cockapoo. We've had him for two weeks, and he is a a sweetheart, and we love him. Now, when we were uh, talking about getting a puppy, Olivia, of course, rightly so, expressed her concern Uh, If any of you have gotten a puppy, it's like having a kid in some ways. It changes your life. And so Olivia was sharing, you know, all of her concerns. And guess what my response was? What are you worried about? It'll work itself out. It'll be fine. And of course, she looked at me and said, you don't know that. And of course, she was right. You know why? Because one... I didn't have a plan, and two, there were going to be things that were out of my control. I didn't have a plan, and there was going to be things that were were out of my control. And so part of getting the puppy was (laughs) I tried to get a plan, and I tried to factor in those things that, that were in my control. Now, this morning, I... I want you to take that image of our dynamic for Olivia and I and how I responded without a plan 
and without any control. And I want you to compare that with what we see in Paul's passage and what he's trying to show us about God, that God does have a plan and God is ultimately in control. That's exactly what Paul wants us to see and it's how he starts off his letter to the Ephesians. Now we're, we're starting this new series and we're going to move slowly through the book. We're actually going to be in Ephesians until next summer. Now, this is the first time we've spent this much time in any book of the Bible. And the reason we're taking so much time is because Ephesians has so much to offer. And I believe it also uh, correlates well with the vision we talked about last week. We had our vision Sunday last week, and we shared about our vision for this upcoming ministry year was to focus on becoming a growing and thriving family. And I shared from uh, the story of Jesus calling Levi and having a meal with the tax collectors and sinners, and we talked about how Jesus often used the meals, used meals as an opportunity to minister to people, to connect with people, to grow relationally with people. And I kind of offered a challenge for the people, our people here at King's Church, um, with what we called a meal a month. And, and part of that challenge was for you guys over this next ministry year, so we're talking September through next May, for you to, as a family or as individuals, to make an attempt to have a meal with either another family or individual at King's Church that you don't know. Have one meal a month. Invite them either into your home or go over to their home or maybe it's at a restaurant or maybe at the park, wherever it might be. Have one meal with someone you don't know and write their name uh, on this uh, handout. Now, if you don't have one, please let me know. We're going to print out some more and have them available for you next week. Um, but this is uh, something we're going to be doing to, to grow and become a thriving family. And I believe that the book of Ephesians actually is also another important step in us be, fill, uh, fulfilling this vision. Uh, Ephesians is a great book for us to marinate in over the coming months as we wrestle with this. John Calvin, who was the famous reformer from the 16th century, he called Ephesians his favorite letter. And one commentator called it the queen of the epistles, the epistles being the letters of the New Testament. And a commentary I was reading this week described Ephesians this way. It said, this letter challenges the pietistic individualism and corresponding weak doctrine of the church that we so often find in evangelicalism. Don't look at the church, we say. Look at Christ. Paul, however, expects the outsider to see Christ in God's unifying purpose for the world precisely in the church. And so I firmly believe that as we marinate in Ephesians... We're going to be challenged to become that growing and thriving family that we believe God is leading us to be. This letter is going to challenge us. At the same time, it's going to encourage us. It's going to show us that we are in Jesus Christ and the difference that that makes in our lives. And we know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul uh, traveled to Ephesus probably in the early 50s of the first century. 
And he stayed there several years, ministering and establishing the church there. And Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians from Rome, probably in the early 60s AD. He was in prison at the time. Now, I have a map. It gives you an idea of where Ephesus is. Hopefully, you can see Ephesus in relation to the other major cities of of that time. It's along the coast of what's now modern-day Turkey. And uh, some of you have probably traveled to Turkey and maybe seen some of the ruins that are there of Ephesus. That's all that's left of this great city. It was called the mother city of Asia in Paul's day because of her influence over the politics the commerce, and the religious atmosphere of that area. Ephesus was uh, really the leading city of the richest region of the Roman Empire. And in Paul's day, only Rome and Alexandria were larger. It was cosmopolitan, it was multi-ethnic, and it's difficult to know with any certainty what the population of Ephesus would would have been at the time in the mid-first century, but some put it at over 200,000 people. And Paul likely uh, assumed that this letter that he wrote would travel not just through Ephesus, the city, but the surrounding area to all the house churches in the area and nearby villages. And Paul begins this letter like he begins many of his other letters. And this was the common format that people would use in writing letters in Paul's day. He begins by introducing himself in verse 1. And you notice, if you have your Bible, or you can notice on, uh, look in the slide here, in verse 1, he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, when Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's referring to the fact that he had been uniquely called by Jesus to be his messenger. Now, if if you've read the book of Acts, you know Paul's story of coming to faith in Jesus and being called by Jesus is found there in Acts chapter 9. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, and he was actually on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians who were there, and he is interrupted by Jesus. Uh, We're told in verses 3 through 6 that he heard the voice of Jesus. He saw Jesus and heard him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul responded and said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus grabs hold of Paul and says, now you're mine. Now I'm going to use you. For my purposes. And and later on in the chapter in verse 15, uh, Jesus tells Ananias, who's there to help Paul, because Paul's been blinded by this experience. And Jesus describes Paul this way He says, He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul's life had been turned upside down, inside out, and now the very man who was adamantly persecuting the church would be Jesus' chosen apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, why does Paul need to, to give himself this label and introduce himself this way in the letter? Well, of course, it's for credibility. Because Paul's writing to people, maybe he, they've never met him, they don't know him. So Paul is trying to give uh, credibility to his letter so that the people who read it there, the Christians in Ephesus and the surrounding area, 
would be able to say, wow, okay, we need to listen. This man has something to tell us. And he addresses his audience, he goes on, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, saints here, that's not intended to be perfect people. That's not how Paul is using the the phrase. It's an Old Testament phrase or word. Uh, It gives the, uh, the image of God's people. And unfortunately, sometimes we view saints, that means Christians are perfect, that they they never struggle, they don't have any problems. No, saints here is intended to give this idea of being set apart. These saints were set apart for God. They're not saints because they're perfect. They're saints because God has intended them to be his people and for his purposes. And so just as Paul had been set apart as an apostle of Jesus... The Christians in Ephesus had been set apart as saints, as the people of God. And Paul continues in the letter in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often introduced himself in his letter this way. One commentator put it this way, that grace is one of the most important words in Paul's theology Even though other writers use this greeting, no other writer comes close to placing as much emphasis on grace as Paul. Not by accident, he begins and ends every letter with grace, as if to emphasize that all of life is lived in the parameters of grace. So that is how Paul begins his letter, very common structure, very common way to, to start out a letter. But then you'll notice as we go into verse 3 and following, and, and if you have a Bible, this is where it's really helpful to open your Bible and kind of see the larger context of what Paul writes here. Uh, it feels like a long run-on sentence, doesn't it? And, and in fact, this run-on sentence goes all the way to verse 14 in chapter 1. Now, we only read to verse 10. We could have gone all the way to 14, but I just wanted to stay uh, within the first, these first 10 verses. And while most English translations don't show this, the Greek text in verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence containing over 200 words. And Paul uh, goes, he starts in verse 3 to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now, this is an interesting way to start off, isn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Now, 2 Corinthians is the only letter where he introduces the letter this way. In 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 3 and 4, notice the similarity. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our, all our affliction. Same kind of idea coming out in Paul's letter in both places. Now, what is Paul doing here when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? How does Paul bless God? Because when you, when you think of that word, we often think of it as God blesses us. And when we think of God blessing us, we think of God favoring us, strengthening us, giving us good things. Is Paul strengthening God, favoring God, giving God good things? Well, this is very Jewish. 
It's a very Jewish style here. It's kind of a, a doxology, a benediction, a blessing that Paul's giving to God. And we notice this in Peter, too. Peter does the same thing in his first letter. Peter, notice the language. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is Paul doing when he blesses God, when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord? It brings to mind Psalm 103, and this is where Paul's Jewish roots come out. If you're familiar with that psalm, I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to notice what, what the psalmist is doing here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What's going on here? Whether it's Psalm 103 or 1 Peter 1 or 2 Corinthians 1 or Ephesians 1, what Paul is doing when he says, blessed be God, Paul is worshiping God. So it's a different idea than the, God, the way God blesses us. When we bless God, we aren't giving him anything. We are responding to what he has given us with worship. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in this first portion of Ephesians 1. It is all about what God has done for us, and it causes Paul to worship. And that's what he means when he says, Bless, be, blessed be God. It's almost like his heart, his mind, and his soul is lost it's, they're lost. He's lost in the wonder of who God is and what God has done. And if you've ever talked to a child who is excited about something that they've just experienced, like if you've talked to a child who's gotten off of a, you know, a ride at Disneyland or a carnival, you know, the child will, will have this long run-on sentence that in some ways doesn't stop. We got on the ride and it went really fast and we went up and we went down and it was like, oh man, and I thought, and then my friend was like, no way. And my stomach went, oh. But my mouth said, go faster. And, and it was the coolest thing ever. That's kind of what Paul, Paul's caught up. And it's just coming out. The wonder, the amazement He's lost in it. And that's why this long, run-on sentence, he's, he's, he's enraptured. And he's contemplating from beginning to end what God's, he's contemplating God's plan for salvation and the renewal of his creation. That's all. <laughs> Just a little thing. The renewal of all things. A wise mentor once told me, a leader has a plan. And the reason that's so important for a leader to have a plan is that it brings people comfort and they're able to follow you. In the beginning, 
of the God's plan that Paul's talking about here, we see in verse 4 that the very beginning of this plan that God has for all of creation, Paul tells us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean, before the foundation of the world? In him, in Christ, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying that before God created anything, he knew you. How old is the universe? Can somebody name? How many billions of years? Okay, billions, right? The number keeps going up the more they learn. Before that, God knew you. That's what Paul's saying. Before God created, before the Big Bang, God knew you. Let that sink in. Is it, if you've ever questioned your value and your worth, reflect on verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. You were an integral and you are an integral part of God's plan. You and I, chosen in Christ, before God created anything, he knew you, he knew me. And we're going to talk more about what that means next week. But notice that this also speaks of the intimacy of the Father and the Son, God the Father, Jesus the Son, that before creation, Jesus was with the Father, bear with the image, arms around each other, making this plan. <laughs> All right, this is how it's going to go. And oh yeah, and there's, there's Michelle, and, and there's Randy, and there's Michael, and there's Sue, and oh yeah, I know them, and I know them, and I know them, and I know them. Before Jesus came to earth, he wasn't this passive observer of what the Father was doing, but he participated in the planning of all that God has done and accomplished. They knew the obstacle that sin was going to play in separating us from relationship with God our Father, and God and Jesus together had this plan in place, and he knew you. And so this is the beginning of the plan, and Paul is lost in that idea. And so should you, so should I, be lost in that idea, the wonder of it all. And so this was the beginning of the plan, but in verse 10, Paul talks about the end of the plan, where he says it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, interesting part of the Greek here in this verse 10, uh, that Greek word for plan, it was commonly used in the daily life of the Greco-Roman world because it referred to a household. Every household in, at, in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world uh, would have been managed by a household manager. They would have taken care of everything that was happening within that home. And if you Recall Jesus, five different parables Jesus tells in the Gospels, 
portray God as a manager of a household. And so Paul has taken that imagery and he's putting it here and he's portraying God as a household manager. But notice, what, what is God's house? All of creation. The heavens and the earth. God is a household manager. He's got it all in order. Paul explained expressed a similar idea in Philippians when he declared in chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Basically, Paul's saying the plan that God made at the before creation, in the end, it all comes under the lordship of Jesus. It all wraps up under the lordship of Jesus. And all the brokenness and all the sin and all of death is wiped away. And I love uh, in the story of the Lord of the Rings, Christians, pastors love to quote that story. But it's so beautiful and it's so rich. And there's a portion towards the end of the story where Sam is speaking to Gandalf and Sam says this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And he asks this very beautiful question. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. And some of you are in that place. You haven't heard the sound of laughter in a long time. And so you hear this story of God's plan in the context of stress and anxiety, perhaps depression and sadness and brokenness. And maybe you're asking that question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Paul's telling us here in verse 10, yes. 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 And this is where the second part of what Paul's showing us here, and I'm alluding back to my initial illustration with me and Olivia, not only does God have a plan, God's in control. We know that plan's going to come to fruition He's in control. Notice how it's throughout the passage. Paul in verse 1 says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul states it quite clearly. Hey, this wasn't my doing. This was God's doing. By his will, I'm his apostle. He goes on in verse 4. He says he chose us in him. In verse 5, he says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. And then, of course, in verse 9 and 10, he talks about the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. Time and time again throughout this section, Paul's saying, God's in control. It's according to his will. It's according to his plan. It's going to happen. We can rest in assured of that. 
And of course, Paul isn't the only one that says this. You read throughout the scriptures. Notice in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And of course, in James 4, we read, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It is God who is in control. Now, this would have been particularly helpful for the Ephesians. And Clinton Arnold, uh, a scholar, I believe he's at Talbot, uh, has written extensively on this in the context of Ephesians. Ephesus was the capital city of the goddess Artemis also known as Diana. She was revered. Her temple was one of the wonders of the world. And I want you to notice, uh, I don't have this on the slide, but if you're familiar with chapter 19 in the book of Acts, Paul is in Ephesus. And we're told that there were Jewish exorcists we're trying to invoke the name of Jesus to drive out these demons. And when they tried to do this, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And we're told that the man who had the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now listen to this part. This gives you insight to the kind of culture Paul's speaking to in Ephesus. Listen to how they respond. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Practices, what were their practices? And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Magic was actively and almost, well, I won't say universally, but widespread. It was practiced on a large scale in Ephesus and the surrounding area. It had a reputation for magical practices. And this was predicated on a worldview that there was the presence and influence of good and evil spiritual powers on every area of life. And magic was a way to harness that power. And you managed life through rituals and incantations and invocations. And Ephesus was famous, in fact, for a magic widely known as the Ephesian letters. Now, these were six magical words that people would either speak or they had amulets. Uh, these words would be inscribed on amulets. And there's a couple of stories that were well known uh, about this. One story was of a, uh, a wrestler, an Ephesian wrestler. He was competing in the games at Olympia, he was wearing the Ephesian letters on an amulet that he had on his ankle. And he was winning match after match, and then it was removed, and he lost. Those kinds of stories were well known in Ephesus. Magic was a way to be 
in control. And what Paul is doing, he's speaking into this culture and he's saying, no, God is the one in control. And so this teaching on election and this teaching on God's will would have been comforting and it would have been a counter uh, teaching to the fears of these readers who were hearing this, who had embraced astrology and magical practices and even worshipped Artemis. And, and I'll, I'll read this quote from Arnold. He says it this way, Those who are accustomed to paying a great deal of money to a local magician for a spell to break a bad horoscope or to thwart the impact of astral spirits on their lives would find Paul's teaching remarkable and moving. Their fate does not rest on capricious and hostile spirit powers populating the heavenly realms. Their fate and their eternity rest in the hands of the one true God who has chosen them to be in relationship with him before the hostile spirit beings even came into existence. Their future is secure and blessed because of their election in Christ, their present dynamic relationship to him. And so, say what you will about election. It's a controversial issue. We'll talk more about it next week. But I want you to see what a comfort it would be to these Ephesians. And what a comfort it can be to us. That God is in control. And I want to end uh, by sharing with you this song by Stephen Curtis Chapman and his wife Beth. If you know their story... They wrote a very moving uh, album called Beauty Will Rise, and it came after the tragic death of their daughter, Maria Sue. And each of the songs on this album speaks of their pain and their heartbreak, and each song is laced with God's grace and praise. And, And I know some of you are in a place where you are experiencing maybe not pain to that degree. Maybe some of you are. But your own pain in your own situation, and I want you to spend a few moments with me listening to this song that Stephen and his wife wrote called Our God is in Control, and put yourself in their place or allow yourself to soak in that good news that your God has a plan and that he is in control. So let's spend a few moments. The lyrics will be on the on the slide, and just sit with me as we reflect and listen to this beautiful song.